Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and to make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father. And if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. In you I find my joy. All right, turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. That's where we're going to be this evening, is in Matthew. And uh, we are, um, sometimes we do this in the summer, uh, we're, we're certainly doing it this summer, where we kind of take a break from being in a specific series and we allow whoever, uh, I, I use that term loosely, allow, uh, we encourage whoever is speaking to uh, kind of just bring whatever they're learning and to, sh- to talk about whatever they feel like God's talking to them about. One of the values we have in teaching um, on our team is that whatever feeds us will feed others. And so we want to just be staying close and accountable to eating from the shepherd. And um, so that's what I'm going to do tonight. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 12 eventually. Uh, I have a little bit of a long intro to get there. So um, normally, a part of our church, we get right to the text. Uh, tonight, we're going to get there, I promise, but just bear with me for a moment. I, I want to ask you this question this evening, and the whole message will, eventually, will, will, will essentially revolve around this question. What is the good life for a disciple? What is the good life for a disciple? Now, if you've been in any philosophy 101 classes, you know that all the way back to Socrates, there has been a debate amongst philosophers about the good life. What is the good life? What is the life that's worth living? What's the uh, life that really matters? Uh, What's the purpose of life? I think that's even within that question. And what philosophers have said is that the unexamined life is not worth living. So to just go through life and not examine yourself, not to do, the, not do, to do introspection and really uh, think about the purpose of life, meaning of life, this or that, that's not a life worth living. Americans, we have our own take on it, Americans say the unenjoyable life is not worth living, right? If life isn't enjoyable, then I'm not sure it's, li- it's worth living. If you are a three on the Enneagram, the unconquered life is not worth living, okay? Any threes? Just... Okay, hey, a few of us in the room. All right. Um, But disciples are different, right? We don't have this kind of luxury of just inheriting a definition of the good life from anywhere that we may choose. So I want to ask this question. What is the good life for the disciple? Or another way to think about this is what is the goal? What, what, what is the goal for somebody who is in Christ? Somebody who is a disciple of Jesus? I see, I find that many... Uh, For many Christians in the West, there's really three descriptions of the good life that turn into three roots for the disciple's life journey. There's really three definitions of what the good life is that really turn into three different roots for the disciple's life journey. I want to kind of talk through each of these because I think they're kind of important, and I believe there's actually some false gospel attached uh, to each of these roots, if you will. So the first root is this, the pursuit of understanding. What is the good life for a disciple? Well, in the Western church, we've said it's the pursuit of understanding. Now, on this route, the life of a disciple is essentially an academic one. 
It's an academic life. And, and, and this isn't necessarily a, a bad thing. I think we should all have a certain aspect of the academy within our personal relationship with God. Um, Christianity is a bookish religion, if you will. It's, it's, it's been devoted to text and to scripture. And to, there's been this tradition of reading the text for yourself, at least for the past 500 years, and uh, certainly reading the scriptures for thousands of years. Um, but, but I think that for many on this route, um, there is somewhat of a defense mechanism taking place. If your, if your discipleship journey has just turned into a, uh, an understanding journey, I think there may be a defense mechanism that is taking place. See, with the tide of secular culture and this immense pressure to just, will you guys just admit that the Bible is a myth? Will you just admit that it has nothing divine about it, that it's just ancient, ancient literature? Um, what has happened with that pressure is there's a belief that kind of has sprouted up, I think, in many Christians, which is, hey, we're not going to see the same fruit that Jesus saw. Uh, I don't even know if we can, we can believe in this fruit. So our job as believers under the pressure, under the deluge of this culture, is just to be faithful. And so I may not be a fruitful disciple, but I will be a faithful learner. So I think for, for many on this route, they, they have kind of uh, this kind of theology behind why they won't be fruitful and why they, they kind of have to explain, well, look, we live in this secular context. Nobody really is going to believe the Bible because it's really strange and it has these supernatural claims. And, and, and so I think the best that we can expect is just to be faithful. I, I saw this language kind of popping up in the past, I don't know, five or six years of being a faithful presence. And it really was kind of this, this secondary aim because of the difficulty of culture, because of the pressure that I think many believers feel. Now, there, there's obviously some hiccups there, I think, in that mentality. But the one that I was thinking about as I was thinking of this path is that it can be easy if your whole relationship with God is centered around just kind of understanding more, learning more. I just want to know more about the original context, the original language, where this came from. What would It doesn't really matter what you think God is speaking to you through this at all. What would the original listeners have heard from this? If it's all about unearthing and getting to the bottom, here's what I've found is that it can be easy to delay or put off obedience to God by claiming that more understanding is needed. There's a passage in the New Testament where, where um, the author is talking about beware of people who constantly are circling around trying to come to the truth but never land on it. And it, it, I think that this has happened in, in the Western churches that there's been this definition of what does it mean to be a disciple? It just means to kind of debate and to talk and philosophize around the scriptures. But, but I don't think that that would bear the fruit that Jesus bore. The, the second route I call the moral adventure. I think this is probably maybe the most popular route. This is the most popular definition of what it means to be a disciple or what it means to be uh, a Christian today is this idea of the moral adventure. Look, every human is born naturally religious. Uh, people will turn anything into a religion. My, my wife and I, I, this is so weird to have to admit, but it's just true. We have certain opinions about art and, and, and architecture, and we will, we, I've found myself even like looking down on people who don't like the same kind of art and architecture. Why do I look down at them? I've made it a religious thing. We do this all the time. We do this with sports. We do this with food. We do this with any of our tastes, right? 
we naturally, humans, use their tastes and interests to divide the unholy from the holy. They're the other, and we are the in-group. So, so it's no wonder that when a human gets saved and they come into Christ, they are looking for ways, naturally, to synthesize Jesus into a lifestyle system. And I don't even mean this in a bad way. I actually think this is part of following Jesus is just learning how to interact with him and what to do and what the morality is and, and what, is the, what is his definition of life and all of that. Um, I think many are trying to figure out simply what does Jesus mean for my life and for my practice, how I live my life. But what this can turn into is a life where the, the high mountaintop seasons have little to do with relationship with God and they have more to do with your own moral performance. So you're like, I didn't do that sin that I really like to do. I must be okay. I'm, I'm a real Christian. I'm doing, I'm doing great. Or the adverse of that is, I keep doing that thing that I said I wasn't going to do, and I don't know why I do it, but I keep on going back to it, and I'm so sorry, and it's damaging the people in my life. I feel far from God. It's really a false gospel that unconsciously believes Jesus did about 50% of the work on the cross, but I better behave because I need to do the other 50%. And, and so many in this route, they, they, they don't experience the fruit of Jesus because they're too concerned with how they're doing morally. I think many of us grew up in that. The, the, the last route is this. Uh, I call it justice inspiration the route of justice inspiration. This is a kind of the common path that I've watched many, of pe many people in my generation, many young people uh, walk down because of the pressure of a post-Christian world. So, so imagine a believer, and, and here's kind of the pathway, if they're, if they're on the pathway of what it means to be a disciple, and, and, and you know what C.S. Lewis says, he says, very few of us just choose to not be on that pathway, we just kind of slowly drift off that path. This is the drift. Imagine a Christian and this Christian has a surface-level relationship with God. In other words, they're not continually experiencing the power of God. They're not, they're, not, they're not hearing testimonies about what God is doing. They're not witnessing people being prayed for and healed. They're not seeing prophecy actually take place. And, and, and to add to that, they don't sense a need for his presence in their lives because they have just enough money to self-medicate the deep aches of their heart that God wants to address with things that they can purchase and experience in life. Now, the next step is that believer goes through some level of life difficulty, the problem of pain. They experience uh, something difficult in life, and it begins this question, I'm not sure that God is actually who I thought that he was or who my youth pastor said that he was. Combine that with a friend of theirs or a family member who has some sin in their life uh, that would be awkward to confront. What happens next normally is that that person then has to avoid the scriptures. Because not only do they feel let down by God because of the pain that they've gone through, but they look around at the people's lives who are not congruent with the New Testament ethic for what it means to be a disciple and they no longer can just read the Bible for what it says. There's all these, interpre everything's interpretation, always seen through, never coming to a solid foundation of the truth. So they avoid the text. Now, without the guide of Scripture, what is this Christian left with 
to create their own sense of reality and what's true, their experience. And so a believer who has drifted to this point normally doesn't have the ability to construct any semblance of absolutes or truth, and so they have to use their life experience to kind of cobble together that with vague Christian sentimentality. They combine those two things and they come up with their own reason for life, their own, uh, their truth, if you will. Often what happens next is there's, an, there's a convenient reinterpretation of Jesus allegorically and symbolically. So Jesus is now just a social justice advocate for oppressed classes he may or may not have died, may or may not have existed, and probably didn't rise from the dead. Next, what happens is that person then begins to see the primary reason for the church as community rather than equipping. And then lastly, their entire definition of what it means to be a Christian changes to someone who works to upend social stratification. It has very little to do with the power of God or the morality of Christ in the New Testament authors. And the fruit of this is often self-righteousness and a religious attitude towards people who are not woke. Now, I didn't really put any of those roots in the best light, and you're like, hey, I'm on one of those roots. <laughs> you bully. What are you, what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> I didn't know, pastors aren't supposed to be mean. This guy's mean. Here's what I wanna say. I have compassion on anyone who's on any of those roots, and I find myself on some of those roots at times. I really do. I'll wake up some days and think, I've drifted, and this is my belief system now. And I have to change that. It's called repentance. I need to come back to the path. Here's the problem with all three, and I want you to see this. They do not produce the fruit that Jesus promised. It's the fruit test. <laughs> he said, Jesus said, you are connected to a vine, and that connection produces fruit in your life. And then he said, you will know a tree by the fruit it produces. It's an inconvenient thing as a disciple, but the fruit of our lives reveals the source that we have. So it's like, am I on the right path? Well, what's the fruit? Am I correct, connected to the right thing? Well, what's the fruit? Is it the same fruit that he saw? So, so here's the question. What is the good life for a disciple? Well, well to answer that, I, I, I think we need to look at the entire story of the Bible. The entire story of what the scriptures are telling us. So, so if you want to even just close your eyes for a moment, I'm going to take you on a little Bible journey, okay? Here's the Bible journey. You want to know what the good life is? You want to know what the good path is? Here's what it is. When God created humans, he created them for a purpose, the purpose in creating humans was to expand Eden through partnership across the whole of the world that God had created. Eden was in a garden that was amongst a much larger world, and so God places humans in there uh, as his representatives to have a rule and dominion over the earth through relationship and partnership with him. Now, what ends up happening is humans, they take that authority, they take that rule, and they give it away. Instead of agreeing with God, there's a serpent, this fallen angel, a fallen Elohim, some kind of lowercase g, God, gets into the garden. And in conversation with the serpent, they, instead of asking God what he thinks in partnership, 
They believe what the serpent says in partnership. Now, what ends up happening is instead of Eden being expanded across the whole world through partnership with humans, humans instead partner with the enemy. And the next story we get is Cain and Abel. What happens with Cain and Abel? God says to Cain, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It longs to have you to rule over you, just like the serpent ruled over the humans. Sin wants to rule over you, and it does. And we get chapters and books and stories and years and, of humans who choose to partner with the snake rather than with God, choose to be ruled by a beast rather than rule over beasts. Humans need a real human. We need a real human who can come and be the human that, that no human has been so far. Well, Jesus shows up on the scene. The promised Messiah shows up, the snake crusher. Somebody's gonna crush that snake, and this could be him. And what does he do? He goes and has his own test. And what is his test? It's the same test that Adam and Eve had. It's a food test. Turn these stones into bread. Sin by eating he passes the test. He doesn't do it. This is the human that we've been waiting for. And what does Jesus do? He goes to the cross to crush the serpent. He goes to the cross to, in the language of the New Testament, triumph over the gods, over his enemies, over the powers and principalities, all so that we can be reunited back in that same Edenic partnership with the Father that we might expand Eden once again through our lives. He's then resurrected, breathes on his disciples. Where did we see that before? Oh, Genesis 1. Breathes on his disciples so that they can become human again, alive with the Spirit, and now humans are able to expand Eden through partnership. When Jesus then sends his disciples out, and I would include us in this, he says, as you go Make disciples. We talked about this the other day. As you go, make disciples. What does that mean? It means it isn't an event. It's part of your life. As you go about your life, create union back between humans and God. The good life for a disciple is what I call kingdom partnership. What is the good life? It's kingdom partnership. And so if you're here this evening and you've somehow wandered from this path, I want to look at two stories of Jesus tonight where I think that we see the way back to the path. I think we're going to see the way back to this kind of lifestyle and, and, and to this kind of relationship. Firstly, the first story is going to speak to the authority that you actually have because many believers have authority and they just don't know it. So here's my question to you. How did Jesus do what he did when he was on earth? How did Jesus perform the miracles that he did when he was on earth? Because it matters either Jesus is an example for us or he isn't. There are whole lenses used to um, read the gospels that essentially say that Jesus did the miraculous because he was validating that he was God. He was proving, he was showing, I'm, I'm doing these things so that you can believe that I'm God. And if that is the case, then there's no need for us to live lives expecting to see the miraculous or to think that we would ever come close to the kind of authority over the demonic that Jesus exhibited. 
So, so let me ask you this way. Did, did Jesus put on display a life that was possible or was it a display of God on earth? Did, how about this? Did Jesus do what he did because he was God or because he was a man full of the spirit? That's something to think about. Okay, finally, we're in Matthew. Matthew chapter 12. I think he's gonna answer it, guys. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Go ahead and look down at your Bibles. This is what it says. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. It's unbelievable. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. So there's a debate. How is he doing it? Jesus knew their thoughts. That's pretty cool. And said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But, here's the key, here's the key moment. If it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's interesting to me. How does he do it? By the Spirit of God. Jesus basically rebukes them and he says, look, it isn't by evil that I do good, it is by the Spirit. Now here's a question. What is the one thing that every disciple born again in Christ has? <laughs> the Spirit. Hmm. The breath of God. <laughs> now, now why does that matter? Maybe to you you're like, this seems like a small issue. This is one line out of a whole story. Well, it isn't a small issue. It's actually a huge issue. It means that if we have the Spirit of God in us, we have the same authority and ability to do what he did. It's either the same Spirit or it isn't. He doesn't say, at no point in the New Testament does it say, you get 50% of the Spirit. No, the New Testament tells us the same Spirit that rose him from the dead is alive in you. Paul actually gets this, and he speaks to this in his letter to Philippi. Here, here, here's what he says in, in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So Jesus, fully God, yes, and fully man. Yes. Just go ahead and tuck that in the mystery folder in the back, okay? Now, here's what's interesting about this passage. That phrase, in very nature, is one Greek word, and it's isos, or isos, and it means identical. That's what the word means, identical. So we could read this, Jesus being identical to God, right? Now, there's another phrase that's interesting, is Jesus being identical to God, did not consider equality with God, here's the phrase, something to be used. What is that in Greek? It's harpagmos, harpagmos. 
What does that mean? Well, it's the act of seizing. It's the act of grabbing. So, so we, could, we, could, we could read it this way. Though he was identical, 100% with God, he doesn't seize that to utilize while here on earth. One of my professors says, God had an all-access pass to the universe, and he lays the pass aside in order to act and live as a man full of the Spirit. Now, why is this important? Because we didn't just see what is possible for God. We saw what is possible for man in relationship with God. Verse 28, once again, says this, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Let me ask you this. If Jesus had done this miraculous thing. I mean, I mean, giving a, a, a deaf and a mute man the ability to, to um, or, or deaf and blind man the ability to see and to speak, or see and to hear. If he, had, if he had done this because he was God, would he have still said the kingdom has come upon you? Like, like if he had said this, like if verse 28 read this way, if it is by the power of me being God that I drive out demons, blah, 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 the kingdom of God has come. Would the kingdom have come? I think so. Anytime Jesus enters into somebody's life and does something, God does something in people's life, the kingdom of God is there. But here's what I want to say. If the kingdom of God could only come through Jesus, then we are all sunk. <laughs> because Jesus lived 2,000 years ago and only for a span of 30 years but the kingdom has come upon you because the example has been set and it's repeatable. Jesus said the kingdom is at hand. In other words, it's possible. He didn't seize onto his being God, identical with God in order to do what he did, but the kingdom is now at hand and so you can seize upon that by the spirit. The kingdom coming has always meant the stomping of our demonic oppressors. It's always meant that but it is also the ability of believers to do the stomping. Here's what Paul says to the church in Rome. He says, everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It would be enough for me if he said the God of peace will just soon crush Satan. You're like, that's great. He made it personal. Because our entire lives are to be a crushing of the enemy around us. What is the good life? Oh, it's to crush the enemy <laughs> through our agreement with him. It's to crush the enemy through truth. It's to see wherever the enemy has influence, what, what he is doing in people's lives, and it is to command against it, to speak against it. That is the good life. But, but there may be a catch for some of us tonight, because we're going, ah, that sounds like a good life, but there is a dissonance. There is a gap between that life and the life that I'm living or the life that my friends are living, falling into lesser definitions of what it means to be a disciple. And I think this second story will help us see the way back. So turn to the right in your Bible, next book over, Mark chapter nine. Mark chapter nine is another story that I want us to look at. And, and this is just such a powerful, powerful story. Mark chapter nine, what, what essentially is gonna happen in this story is you are essentially gonna see disciples who have, uh, they're not getting the fruit that Jesus got. We just saw Jesus get some fruit, right? They don't get it, and they ask why. It's so insightful. 
Okay, Mark 9, verse 14 says this. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You've probably read this story before, but I don't want us to, to miss the gravity of this. I want you to pause and I want you to imagine the turmoil that this man would be going through. His last resort is just, I've heard of this guy. He's got these followers. Maybe one of them can help me. There is nothing worse as a parent than your child being in pain. Nothing. Anytime your child is in pain, you would, every time, nine, uh, 10 times out of 10, you would take that pain in yourself if it meant that they didn't have it. Amen. So you have to understand the hopeless situation that this man is in, watching the enemy just have his way with his boy. So much so that there's an argument. We've had a lot of prayer down here. <laughs> we've prayed for a lot of people. We've seen some healings. We've prayed for people who haven't been healed. And there's never been an argument. <laughs> Never. There's an argument here because the healing doesn't happen. This is tough stuff. Now, now watch what happens, verse 19. Jesus speaking, you unbelieving generation. Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Now, here's, here's a question. Who's the unbelieving generation here? <laughs> I think it could be the disciples. They're like, this guy tattled on us. We don't like this guy. <laughs> Verse 20. So they brought him, and when the spirit saw Jesus, this is so amazing, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Verse 21. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible. Let's, I don't want to miss this. Everything is possible for one who believes. And then here's the prayer that every single one of us has prayed. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, <laughs> I love that. He's like, we should not. I would be like, hey, let's wait for these people to show up because it's going to be awesome. He's like, let's do this fast. He said, so he saw that a crowd was running to the scene. He rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many had said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? 
you gotta remember, these are disciples who, who have been sent out and they're like, they came back to report to Jesus. They're like, even the demons bow to us. Even the demons listen to us. They flee wherever we go. And he's like, rejoice that your names are written in the book of life, which, trust me, this will connect. Why couldn't we drive it out? We're used to driving these things out. He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Isn't that interesting? This kind can only come out by prayer. Now, what is most interesting about that answer to me is that Jesus never prayed. He never prays. He doesn't pray. He says to the demon, you out now. He doesn't pray. They're like, how come we couldn't do that? He's like, oh, you just got to pray. They're like, hmm, that's not how we remember it. (laughs) What are we to make of this? See, I think this has less to do with what the disciples did in the moment that didn't work and more to do with what they had cultivated in their lives with God before this moment. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. (laughs) Here's what I mean. What is prayer? What's prayer? Here's my definition of prayer. It's not the final definition. You can have other definitions. Here's mine for tonight. Prayer is any and all communication with God. From verbal to nonverbal, we are in communication with God in all of our lives. It's communication. The purpose of prayer is connection with the Father. Normally, when in the West, when we think of prayer, what we mean is intercession. Going and praying, God, would you do this? And can you do this? And, and that's great. That should be a part of our prayer life. But I'm talking about just daily communion. God, I'm, I remember when I first became a believer, um, I, didn't, I, I, thought pra- I didn't know this was prayer, but I thought prayer was the intercession thing. And I would just every day just be like, I just want you to be in my thoughts. So would you just think with me? And he would bring thoughts into my mind and thoughts about this. And he'd bring up scripture and he would just constantly be talking to me. It's, it's prayer. One of my uh, professor, uh, Gary Brashear's words, it's family talk. What's prayer? It's family talk. That's what prayer is. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying your authority and effectiveness is tied to your connection with him. It isn't about saying some big prayer. It's about a lifestyle of communication that leads to confidence when you're faced with an impossible situation. A lifestyle of communication that leads to confidence. See, we grow in power as we grow in dependence. We grow in dependence as we grow in communication. It's all about communication. Here's the point. The good life for the disciple is connection to God through communication. When you live like that, even demons will flee. That's the good life. See, humans were designed to be priests. You're like, what was God doing in the garden when he placed Adam and Eve there? He gives them a very specific task to do. It's to work and care for the garden. That same language and that same, uh, that same reference is used when talking about the, the jobs of priests in the Levitical line. The same language for Eden care is used for temple care. What does it mean to be human? It means you're a priest in God's temple. That's what it means. Adam and Eve were the first priests. And it continues to be the disciples' job to be the bridge between heaven and earth in our bodies and in our lives. To have one foot in both. To be that opportunity for somebody to encounter heaven when they had never even asked for it, just by meeting you. 
And this task we have to bring heaven, it could sound daunting. It's like, I have to bring heaven? Like, whoa. But it is as simple as relationship. That's what Jesus is saying. It's about communication. It's about relationship. The good life isn't about trying harder or working more or praying better. It's not sweaty. The good life in Christ is not a sweaty life. And it got me thinking as I was thinking about this whole dynamic of us being priests and and this good life that God has given us. Does anybody know the first time sweat is mentioned in the Bible? There's like any Bible nerds out there, like the first time sweat is mentioned. Anybody? That's right. That's right. The very first time sweat is mentioned is in Genesis chapter three. It's a part of the curse. Here's where it's at. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Where does sweat come from for humans? From fallen work. From exertion without grace. But sweat is mentioned again. This is fascinating. Sweat is mentioned again in Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel. But this time, it's mentioned in connection with priests. Why? Here's what he says. This is God speaking through Ezekiel. When the priests enter the gates of the inner courts, we're talking about the place where God's presence is. They are to wear linen clothes. Sounds nice. They must not wear any woolen garment while ministering at the gates of the inner court or inside the temple. They are to wear linen turbans on their heads and linen undergarments around their waists. This is wild. They must not wear anything that makes them perspire. You're like, where is he going? (laughs) Why? When you are a priest, you exist in God's space. And in his Edenic space, there's no sweat. His yoke is easy. See, as priests, the most important work we do is the light load of relationship with him, not the work from the sweat of our brow. Peter says this in in 1 Peter. He says, is it up there? Oh, really? Sorry, I messed up. 1 Peter says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, I love that. A holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. If you exist in the space where heaven and earth overlap and you stay there, I'm gonna stay in relationship with you. I'm gonna stay in communication with you. You will not sweat. And that's the good life. Let's all stand up. Thanks for listening. And if we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website, saintshill.church. And the yoke is so much easier.